Hello and welcome to DeFi 2.71 podcast. I'm your host, Seraphim, and today we're going to be chatting with Brandon Neal. Brandon joined Oil of Finance as COO, but he used to work for 10 years at the New York Fed. DeFi 2.71 podcast is sponsored by Oil of Finance. Euler is a revolutionary lending protocol backed by industry giants such as Paradigm, Lemnis Cap, Anthony Sassano, and Bankless. Euler Finance aims to democratize and disrupt the lending space by introducing innovations such as permissionless listing, MEV-resistant liquidations, tokenized debts, protected collateral, and many more. Phase 1 launch is scheduled for 13th of December, and check out Euler.finance for more information and exciting news. Hey, Brandon. Great to have you here. How are you doing? Hey, Seraphim. Doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Sure. So uh, tell me more about your background. What exactly were you doing at the Fed? Yeah, so for the past uh, 10 years or so, I've been at the New York Fed, um, specifically uh, doing governance and strategic planning, and most recently on the Open Markets Desk. Uh, the Open Markets Desk uh, is the part of the Fed, the arm that implements monetary policy, provides fiscal agency services. It's the part that touches the market, the sort of tip of the spear. Previous to that, uh, I was uh, working for a variety of investment banks, mostly in Tokyo, but uh, a little bit in New York as well, mainly on the equity side. Cool. I think it's, first of all, it's very interesting that we both come from TradFi backgrounds and we moved into DeFi, first of all. And second of all, you worked at the New York Fed, which has particularly importance in terms of monetary policy and market operations, which we're going to touch on later a bit, but I think that's pretty cool. Like, at what point did you kind of realize that you would you want to move on from the Fed into DeFi? What was that moment? Was there like a impulse? What was it? I don't think there was a particular moment. Uh, definitely wasn't impulsive. I'm pretty thoughtful about decision making. At least I try to be. Uh, I think it had been building over time. So I started learning about blockchain and cryptocurrencies in 2017 or so. A relative latecomer uh, to the space. And uh, it was very interesting to me. I joined one of the Fed's internal working groups uh, about it and um, explored it, got really enthusiastic about it. Then I, got, I became a little bit skeptical, I would say. And, and I feel um, you know, that skepticism was fairly short-lived and I got excited about it again. I guess that first round of skepticism was, was due to, at that time, it, it was sort of in its 1.0 crypto phase where it seemed that there was no necessary applicable use case, at least in industrialized countries where there was trust in institutions. Uh, I became enthusiastic about it again uh, after I realized, and it was sort of foolhardy of me to not have originally realized that, that uh, there's a lot of countries and a lot of people in the world who don't trust institutions um, or who are unbanked or underbanked. And there was some application there for them. I think I got skeptical again around the same time that a lot of a lot of the laser-eyed people on Twitter started showing up. Uh, I think it, it just seemed to, to be mostly hype around that phase. Uh, at least my perception at that time was that it was it was overhyped. There were a lot of um, carnival barkers who were sort of talking their own book, really just you know pushing a particular cryptocurrency or um, their own interests. And um, I remained skeptical up until I think in the middle of or early 2021 last year, uh, when a friend of mine at uh, Paradigm introduced me to some DeFi concepts that I didn't totally have my head around. 
some of those concepts are completely novel. So like automated market maker, flash loans, things that can't possibly exist in the legacy financial system. Uh, flash loans, you know, have no credit risk. Uh, and there's no such thing as no credit risk in traditional finance. There's always credit risk. Even treasury bonds, the, the AAA security, the, the you know, worldwide risk-free rate, there's credit risk there. Uh, as S&P, you know, told everybody uh, about 10 years ago when they downgraded U.S. debt. So to, to hear about a, an application that built on all of the previous iterations of crypto, of digital assets that had true new innovations like flash loans, like um, pure disintermediation in, in the best possible way automated market makers. I got really interested in, in DeFi and I started deep diving it and I went down uh, what the economist has called the rabbit hole and I haven't come out since and it's it's been very exciting. It's funny you mentioned AMMs because that's also what got me into crypto a lot, like the concept that you can provide liquidity, you don't have to be Citadel to do that. That kind of fascinated me a bit. You can create liquidity on pretty much anything. That's just something you just can't do in track wise. I, I share that kind of fascination with uh AMMs for sure. Yeah. Um, um so you've joined Oil of Finance as a CEO lately. I think this is the first appearance uh as a as a person of Euler. So that's pretty cool. Uh how do you feel about it? Yes. What made you so interested about Euler in the first place? Yeah, uh I, I looked at a bunch of different DeFi protocols and talked with a bunch of different teams before I decided where to go. And I think um, what stands out to me is uh, actually a quote from Warren Buffett, which I know he's not super quotable in, in digital asset circles, but uh, he said a long time ago that you want to look for three things in teams and in people. You want to look for a drive, passion. You want to look for intelligence and you want to look for integrity. And if you don't have that last one, the first two will kill you. Uh, I feel, I think I found the, the trifecta in Euler and in the team. And so amidst, you know, all of the, some, I think some of it rightful skepticism that people have about some parts of digital assets and some part of crypto, uh, I think, you know, in Euler, I found the, the perfect match for me and a, a team that has high integrity. We're not a bunch of scams, basically. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, so let's dive in a bit on TrackFi versus DeFi. Like, what do you think is wrong with TrackFi? And what is good about DeFi? Yeah. Um, first, let me say, um, you know, traditional finance is, is very broad, like to use that term. So there's, yeah, there's central banks. Um, there are banking institutions. There are financial institutions. There are clearing banks. There are a thousand others involved in the space. And I think that they've evolved to be the way that they are for very good reasons. I think that, you know, throughout history, you, you know, we've st we started essentially bar bartering things. And then we started with, with very primitive um, forms of money. And the way that the system has evolved is such that every single participant up, up until I think recently, it's made sense that they're there. Uh, it's it's made a lot of sense, and not every financial system is the same. Granted, but um, you know, and I have a particularly U.S. or Western centric view of the world, but I I do think that the paradigm is shifting a bit, and 
we could use with a little bit less disintermediation. So, so at the 30,000 foot or maybe even like 300,000 foot view of planet Earth, uh, finance is really meant to grease the wheels of commerce. It, it's not meant to be a wheel unto itself, but it's evolved into this massive, massive industry, uh, a series of middlemen who take a tiny cut that adds up to a, quite a substantial portion of GDP. And you could argue, and it's been argued, that finance is, is really bloated because of these excessive numbers of, of middlemen. Uh, I think what DeFi allows is for the system to be somewhat disintermediated, not completely, and, and you could argue both sides of that, that you wouldn't want it to be completely disintermediated. Uh, DeFi allows for, for the financial system to be somewhat disintermediated and for power to be less concentrated in these extremely important systemic financial institutions, uh, the, kind, uh, the kind of risk that we saw in the great financial crisis of, of 2008. I think in my personal opinion, uh, and all, all of what we're talking about today is my personal opinion, by the way, it doesn't reflect any of my previous employers' uh, views. In my personal opinion, there's a benefit to, to that disintermediation and to that reduction and concentration of power. Before we discuss the systemic risks and how DeFi might reduce them and uh, the financial crisis, obviously, just what, what do you think DeFi didn't get right yet? Like, what is the problem with DeFi at the moment? Because everybody's talking about the best things in DeFi. It does this, it does that. What has DeFi not gotten right yet, you think? It's hard for me to say. Um, it's hard for me to give a really good answer on this because... We're just just out of the gate. I think we're at the very first iteration of of DeFi. If the prognosticators are correct, if, if I'm right, if, if you're right in our in our own career choices and and what we're you know spending our precious time here on Earth doing, um, it's still very very early days. So many people have commented that this moment in digital assets and DeFi in particular is akin to the internet in the 1990s. Just really really, really early days. Uh, I think DeFi doesn't solve all problems and there can be, there are rational arguments that are made that you don't necessarily want total disintermediation. You do want some safeguards, some guardrails. There are unscrupulous people out there. Um, there are nefarious actors who will take advantage of any system, whether that's legacy financial, traditional financial systems. You know, there, there's, um, people who don't act in their clients' own interest. There are guys who will sell little old ladies annuities that uh, cost a fortune. Um, and there need to be some fiduciary, I think, guardrails in, in any financial system to take care of your clients, to take care of your users, your stakeholders before yourself. Um, I think that's those are being worked out with, with DeFi and at a rapid pace, by the way, everything in my observation, and probably you share the same feeling, DeFi is evolving at like 10X the rate that the traditional financial system evolved. And maybe at, at, at a minimum, you know, one month in DeFi is like one earth year. Uh, it, it's just really, really, really rapid. It's actually impossible in my personal opinion to to keep a handle on every single thing happening um, in in DeFi and in crypto. Yeah, January alone was crazy. We had like these fraud scandals and 
new laws uh, or like new um, executive orders being passed and all that. Uh, we, yeah. don't, we don't have to, we shouldn't comment on that probably, but I think what you're trying to also say is that what DeFi needs a bit more is a bit more accountability, which I suppose the space is trying to self-regulate in that in those terms, but yeah. ultimately there needs to be more accountability so grandmas just don't have the, you know, their money taken away. Right, yeah, and I think that's coming and that's, um, you're right, a self-regulatory type of structure is the way it's actually, you know, when you look at traditional finance, a lot of it is self-regulation and there's been criticisms about that. Um, but it, it makes no sense for, for DeFi to evolve in a way that it would collapse under its own weight or would subject itself to, to scandal. And you're always going to have some people who have a very short sighted outlook who, who want to make a buck tomorrow, who see this as a gold rush. Uh, there's nothing you can do about them in any industry. There's always bad apples. Uh, but I'm very, very optimistic that the, the good apples outweigh, to, to extend the metaphor beyond its use, that the good apples outweigh the, the bad ones. Let's talk a bit about macro. So, um, uh, when QE started, and this is particularly relevant uh, in your case, so when QE started 14 years ago for the audience, quantitative easing, when the, uh, you know, bonds are being bought to inject liquidity, what people refer to commonly as money printing. When that started 14 years ago, there were a bunch of people, even high-ranking hedge fund managers were like, this is going to be the end of all end. Like, this is going to be an inflationary catastrophe. And yeah. Bitcoin became prominent back then as well. People are, So these fears hadn't materialized for a long time. Now I suppose these people feel vindicated because in 2022, we have rampant inflation. Yeah. According to, well, if you look at real CPI numbers, they're quite low compared to the real ones, in my opinion, at least. I think they're double digits. Uh, a lot of people are suffering. It kind of spirals out of control, in my opinion. How did we get here? How did we get from, we're going to start printing a little bit of money. There's no concerns. It seems to be manageable to today. How did that kind of process occur? Yeah. Um... There are a lot of different potential answers here. I, I will say that the Fed did not pioneer quantitative easing. Um, in fact, the Bank of Japan did that years years prior. And the reason that the Bank of Japan did that, by the way, Japan is an interesting case study in all, all regards. E economists like to say there are four types of economies, developed economies, developing economies, Japan and Argentina. Uh, Japan is, is a super interesting case study because uh, they've pioneered so much of what we're seeing now. They've had the, the sort of demographic outcome that many other Western countries are beginning to see. Uh, but it's a, it's a truly unique case. Uh, the risk in, in Japan uh, at the time that it began quantitative easing, in the late 90s, I believe, uh, was deflation. And the risk at the onset of the great financial crisis was deflation. Deflation can wreck an economy if your dollar that you're holding now is worth more tomorrow. You don't spend it now. And spending and the virtuous economic cycle is, is really what a modern economy uh, is comprised of. So deflation is, is definitely the enemy, even I would say mild deflation. Furthermore, you want expectations uh, to not be deflationary. You, you want not just the, the print to, to show inflation, but you want people to expect modest or mild price increases year over year. It's been proven out that's, that's healthy for, for economies. Uh, when the Fed encountered, and it really actually when every 
Western Central Bank encountered the great financial crisis in 2008, fueled by excessive leverage in the private sector, uh, it was, I think, deflation that was immediately on the minds of policymakers. Let me take a momentary step back. Uh, most modern central banks and the Fed itself have, have a dual mandate. You could say that there's sort of a, in parentheses, a third mandate. Uh, that's price stability, in other words, low inflation and no disinflation. Uh, full employment, which is, I think, the most important economic indicator for the public at large. Uh, and then the sort of third in parentheses is financial stability. Those three are all connected. Uh, and there's there's a mild, I guess, tug of war between all three of those. Uh, but that's the that's the policy target of, of uh, officials on the FOMC or, or otherwise. So when you had this massive, massive financial crisis uh, that threatened to and, and somewhat did impact the real economy, and by somewhat I mean it, it majorly impacted the real economy, but it was started as a financial as a as a crisis of over leverage. Uh, it, deflation was the immediate concern at that time. Policymakers acted aggressively. Uh, ben Bernanke, who uh, was the FOMC chair at that time. Uh, acted extremely aggressively. He he literally wrote the book and studied about great financial crises, you know, ahead of that time. So he he was the perfect perfect chair uh, at that moment in history. And the Fed responded extremely aggressively by moving the policy rate, the federal funds rate, um, to effectively to zero, and by massively increasing the Fed's own balance sheet, which injected a ton of liquidity into the system. Obviously, the Treasury Department had to undertake their own very big effort to provide fiscal stimulus because we've only been talking about monetary stimulus so far. Uh, and the combination of, of the monetary stimulus and the fiscal stimulus kept the US uh, out of deflation. And the inflation fears that were being stoked on CNBC and, uh, and other people who, who have a a primary drive to to get eyeballs on on the screen to sell advertisements. Those fears, I think, were overstated from the outset, but were never actually realized. Yeah, I suppose it would be interesting to think about why. I think I, mean, I wonder what you think, but probably that money that was printed, it flow, it was actually flowing into inflation. It, it, it was inflationary, but just for assets, probably because most of that money stayed within the financial system, right? Yeah. Uh, which is different from what's happening now, where that money is actually giving the way to people to spend. And we see those excesses in the economy and in the financial markets as well. But point is, though, we started with a slippery slope where it seemed like this is what has to be done. But using the same technique in the real economy just creates rampant inflation. Um, and what do you think? Yeah, so um, I will say that when you, when you say the word inflation, I'm talking about price, consumer prices, prices that consumers pay. Uh, the Fed and other policymakers don't typically, and I'm not speaking for them again, but they don't, they aren't overly concerned with asset markets. Uh, so the stock market is, you know, something that everyone watches. Everyone feels there's a wealth effect for everyone's 401k or, or retirement accounts uh, to appreciate in value, but that's not a policy goal. It's incidental. Um, to policy. So um, actual prices, and by the way, the preferred gauge uh, of policymakers 
is the Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, uh, PCE or Core PCE, which is a bit more stable, both of those measures than, than CPI. And in fact, when you look at uh, real GDP statistics, uh, they, they take into account PCE, not CPI. CPI is a lot more volatile. But you're right, what we're seeing lately is dramatic increases in uh, inflation. I think I, the statistic was, was the highest inflation since 1982. Is it caused by the Fed? Is it caused by easy money and the low cost of capital? One could argue yes, but not completely. Uh, the, the pandemic has obviously been the biggest story on planet Earth uh, for the past two years. And a number of supply chain disruptions have caused temporary spikes in inflation statistics and uh, real pain for people who uh, are highly sensitive to, to rising prices. Um, but some of that is modulating. I, th I think, you know, I was watching recently some of the, the street forecasts <clears throat> showed those numbers modulating uh, to a great extent over the next two quarters. Uh, and then the Fed has further signaled that um, the time of easy money is coming to an end. So I think, yeah, actually, mm -hmm. yeah I was just going to say the, the inflation concerns are, are somewhat short-lived uh, on, the, on the grand scale, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, actually, yeah, we're going to see in the few, next few months if they can actually oh, uh, implement what they're talking about. Because very often, I mean, we don't know what happens this time, but very often they say it, they do it, and then they quickly revert once financial stability comes into question. Because, yeah, they, they don't monitor, I suppose, asset prices in terms of stocks and what they do. But you said about the third factor, unspoken factor called financial stability, and it just seems like the plumbing, whenever that goes wrong, yeah. If you look at stock prices, they are very correlated. Everything is very correlated. So by saving financial stability, by you know creating financial stability, they inevitably save the stock market as well. So. Yeah. No, I, I, when I started learning about economics uh, in college, I mean, people were talking about the Greenspan put, which is essentially the asymmetric outcome uh, of rising, uh, of increasing interest rates uh, versus keeping interest rates artificially low. Uh, no one, no policymaker wants to be the one that's going to crash an economy. Um, I think that, you know, the, the Paul Volcker era, which is before my and your time, um, and it was the late 70s, early 80s, when there was um, very high inflation in the, in the U.S., stagflation. Um, he dramatically, he, he, it took a lot of courage, uh, but he did cause a recession and crushed the back of inflation during that time. And... Um, since then, I don't, I don't know if there's any policymakers that have that much courage. Uh, fortunately, we haven't seen inflation at those levels, but uh, it, would, it would take dramatic policy intervention if we did. Yeah, actually, a lot of people don't know that people hated him. Like A lot of people actually hated yeah. him. It took a lot of courage to do what I, had to be I done. will say, I, I'm glad. I'm, being a policymaker has to be a very difficult job, no matter which decision you undertake. And there's only a handful of decisions you can undertake. 50%, at least 50% of the people, probably much higher, will always say that you're wrong and you've done the wrong thing. And um, I will say, you, you know, a lot of people leave the Fed and it's almost become a cottage industry. Once you've left a central bank to criticize a central bank, I'm not going to be one of those people. Uh, I think that they have a very hard job. Um, everyone that I worked with at the, at the Fed, uh, the people who implemented that policy are smart, driven individuals. 
who uh, work, you know, as quasi civil servants for substantially, you know, less compensation that they would earn on Wall Street, and do a really, really good job. One of the things I always read in crypto that that um, bothers me a bit is that there's some sort of nefarious intention, some so, some sort of evil plot behind the scenes to um, control the financial system through 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 monetary policy as a you know as a villain. And that's not been my experience at all. I, I've, you know, worked with a bunch of people and everyone has been smart and driven and gotten up early every day, I think, to do the best job that they that they could, given whatever circumstances they found themselves in. Yeah, easy to easy to criticize as a bank salesman or like as a bank analyst or like a hedge fund guy. When you, you know, when you... <laughs> When you watch CNBC in, in up markets or, or any business show or, or even financial publications in up markets, it's the portfolio manager, asset manager's own skill. And in down markets, it's not their fault. It's the Fed. Yeah. And I think that's pretty telling. Uh, let's talk about the financial crisis. Um, I guess it was a good example of a or bad example of systemic risks. Um, Blowing up, blowing up entirely due to a few, uh, due to a few large institutions, right? Um, do you see similar systemic risk in DeFi? I would say not yet. Um, that's my view. I, I started my career myself actually at Lehman Brothers in, in Tokyo. <clears throat> yeah, for better or worse, um, it was actually quite a, a good learning experience. Um, but retrospectively, I would say. Uh, it's sort of incredible that we had large financial institutions, effectively utilities, financial utilities, um, that were allowed to hold so much systemic risk and ultimately have a get out of jail free card. So not in the case of Lehman in particular, but that was later you know, widely reported as being regrettable that the government did not bail out Lehman Brothers and did sub subsequently bail out other institutions. Um, you, you know, if, if banks, if big systemically important banks, investment banks, credit distribution mechanisms, uh, were utilities akin to power companies and the public were recipients of, of energy of power, you could argue you can't let them fail. You can't let the power shut off. There are, you know, people rely on the distribution of credit, rely on banks based on how our system has evolved, uh, and, it would be akin to just shutting off the power plant and, you know, hospitals and other important institutions, individuals rely on that power. So people really, really, I think, and I think the perception people need banks, at least in the current form, and they, they need the financial system in the popular media. I think that there's always a, an incentive to highlight the main street versus wall street concept. So I think you can't have a healthy main street without healthy banks based on how the financial systems evolved. What I like about DeFi, and I think the premise of DeFi is that, and we touched on this earlier, it doesn't, it deconcentrates power so that there is no single systemically important institution or protocol. And it's widely widely distributed. Even the, the the way the blockchain works, as most of your viewers surely know, there's no individual person responsible for the blockchain. It, it's trust through everyone using it, just sort of like the the internet. Sure, there are internet outages from time to time, 
but they're quickly solved and there's no one person in charge of the internet and it works quite well uh, being completely decentralized. I suppose, do you think it, it would like, if we just mentally think of a model, like you have a financial model where you have JP Morgan, Goldman, CT, and a, comp- a bunch of other banks, they have they trade between each other. Um, if one of them blows up, the problem is if JP Morgan blows up, everybody else blows up. They can't do anything. They can't lend, they can't borrow, they can't you know, yeah. do what they usually do. But if you had a word, let's say, of DeFi, where you had oil, um, Aave, Compound, Rari, Sushi, just as an, as an idea. Let's say if Aave or Euler failed. Probably others don't fail, right? Is that, or yeah, do, you think that's, that's, do you think that's the idea? I think that's the idea. That's my intuition. I, you can't say for sure. And there's definitely, it's, it's, not, um, it's not impactless to adjacent or ancillary protocols. There, there would be some impact, but I think it would be much less extreme than what we're seeing in the legacy financial system. Um, it, it, it's almost, and I'm sure that there's, there's so many people who can comment more intelligently about this than me, but it's, there's, there's systemic risk that still exists broadly in legacy finance. And there's, even, even if you try to mitigate that, there's only so much you can do. Uh, and policymakers, I think, have done um, a great deal since the great financial crisis. But there's a certain amount you just can't get out of the system. There's always going to be systemic risk. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's systemic risk to, de- to define it even is very interesting. What exactly is systemic risk? I suppose... Yeah. I suppose like a lot of people conflate systemic risk with uh, collapse in asset prices, which not necessarily is the case. Like the whole idea is that no. if Bitcoin collapses by 95%, if DeFi keeps working as it does, I guess that's fine. Same with TradFi. If even, the, even if like bonds or, you know, collapsed or stocks collapsed during the financial crisis by 100%, it doesn't mean that there's systemic risk unless something blows up, right? Yeah, I think... That's a key point that you just said that appreciating asset markets aren't always good. You, you know, everyone is just so used to graphs that go up and to the right. And, you know, line goes up is not necessarily a good thing in all situations. Um, I'm, I have the un- unpopular and unconventional view that total washouts from time to time in any market are healthy. They're like, um, they're like when your cell dies in your body and you know, you get new cells. It, it, it's, a, it's a cycle that I think is really, really he- healthy and virtuous to have price depreciation from time to time. Um, well, you know, when the tide goes out, you know who's swimming naked. It is. Yeah. Exactly. The concept yeah. there. Yeah. Um, can we touch a bit on like the parallels between gold bugs and Bitcoiners and uh, crypto people? Um, so a bit of criticism in terms of that. Um, the, Fed, the Fed is arguably there to kind of print money when there's no liquidity, right? So even back in the day when there was a gold standard, the Fed would still come in and print some more money than they should, you know, just to save the financial financial system to prevent catastrophe. So the issue with gold bugs, in my opinion, is that like there's a reason why we want gold standard and still we would print money. So if you take a crypto, could you imagine a crypto-backed world where there's no Fed, for instance, where there's no need for money printing to begin with, where washouts just happen every five years or three years like in crypto and that's normal? Or do you think that's just not possible? Like that's just not, you know, viable? Gold is really interesting. If you, again, zoom out on planet Earth 
and take the perspective of an alien and you look um, at these beings, what they're doing, we have an, a shiny object like gold that has had you know historical value to people. We spend a lot of money digging it out of the earth, um, putting it in fancy boxes. We dig another hole, we put it in there, a, a vault, and lock it, and then hire um, armed men to stand around and, and guard that gold. And the aliens must be scratching their heads. There's absolutely no utility in that. And in fact, it's just wasted time and effort. Um, I mean, this sets aside the fact that gold has a few practical applications, industrial applications, like in smartphones and jewelry, et cetera. Um, but it's a store of value because people believe it's a store of value because it's been a store of value for a long time. Many people argue that Bitcoin is a similar store of value, um, just without the utility of being jewelry or going into smartphones, that it's just digital value. Um, Sorry, so to your previous question, um, the Fed, yeah, so obviously we haven't been on the gold standard in the Western world for quite a long time. Um, I will note that the Fed is the, the U.S., the nation's third central bank. There was the Bank of the United States, second bank of the United States. Then there was an 80-year period up until 1913 when the Fed was created. During that 80-year period, and again, I'm not a historian, uh, but during that 80-year period, there were financial super cycles, there were bank runs, there were bank failures. It was really dramatic. And I think the Fed was created uh, partly uh, to help manage that cycle, to smooth the business and financial cycle. Obviously, no individual institution can get, get it right all the time. And the Fed had some you know, early um, missteps, perhaps you, you might characterize it. But uh, there were... I don't think anyone argues, at least in good faith, that the 80-year period that preceded the Fed was better than the 80-year period, well, actually over a 100-year period now since then. Um, one, one thing I'll say, uh, and there is a, there's a graphic that circulates in, in uh, digital asset and gold bug communities, and it's a really disingenuous graph, I think. It shows the value of the dollar uh, over the past hundred years. And it, you know, it starts off at $1 and it goes down, it's like five cents or something now. And people point to this and say, my dollar is not worth anything anymore as it once was, uh, which on the very, very surface is true, but it's completely disingenuous because you have a lot more dollars now than you did a hundred years ago on a per capita basis. All that graph really describes is mild inflation. And the time that that graph goes up, uh, is during the Great Recession in the 1930s. So when there were bread lines and 40% unemployment. So I think policy makers and any central bank, they're not trying to manage the value of a currency over time. They're trying to manage an economy, which is much bigger and much more important. So real GDP increases are, are per capita are what matter. And real already takes out the effect of inflation. So yes, your dollar is not worth a dollar anymore, but what could it buy then? And what can it buy now? You have a lot more dollars in your pocket that can buy a lot more things now and give you a better quality of life than a hundred years ago. Uh, I think a lot of these arguments are, are partly disingenuous and I think partly misunderstood by the public. Inflation, it sounds really simple, but, but there's a lot of complicated um, I guess there's, there's a lot of complicated nuance in, in aggregate economic statistics. 
And real versus nominal, it, it, it should be one that's like very, very easy to understand, but, but people somehow uh, use that to cite mismanagement. And, and it's actually proper management of, of an economy or, or of monetary policy. You actually mentioned the dollar. Um, so the dollar is the world reserve currency at the moment. Before that, it was the pound. Before that, there were a bunch of other currencies. Some people say we might ship to a world where Chinese yuan is the new reserve currency. Um, it's, I never believed this back in the day when people said, you know, what if Bitcoin, Ethereum or some cryptocurrency could be the reserve currency? I thought that was just crazy. But the more I think about it, the more I'm thinking, could that actually be viable? Do you think there could be a world where it's not a sovereign state creating a currency? That's, reserve yeah. That's a reserve currency. I mean, short answer, who knows? You know, when I thought about like 500 years in the future after you and I are long gone, uh, the world is going to look very, very different than today. And if, if you put that like as a dot, like on a graph, I don't know, utility and time or something, there's going to be dots that connect us between now and then. What would they look like? Uh, I, I think that's actually partly also why I became interested in cryptocurrency and digital assets and, and especially DeFi. It seems to be one of those dots to the up and to, up and to the right, where, whereby we're probably not going to have dollars. We're probably not going to have the same system in 500 years. I would hope not, actually. If, if we did, we've, we've really not changed or evolved much. Um, I don't know necessarily what it looks like in the meantime. The US, you know, it's a young country, relatively speaking, and the dollar has been around um, for less time than the US. Um, and as you stated, the pound was previously the the world's reserve currency. There were a bunch of currencies previous to, to the dollar's dominance. It's not unthinkable at all that the dollar would no longer be dominant. I would say that those are pretty, in my, my view, those are uh, far away situations. So I think for the foreseeable future, the dollar will remain the world's reserve currency. While the yuan is, is gaining steam, um, I think that it's not going to, again, it's my personal view, it's not going to get there in any, in any reasonable time frame. And if you look even in crypto, most stable coins are pegged to the dollar, um, which there's a bit of irony there. You know, some, some of the extreme crypto maximalists or enthusiasts poo-poo the dollar uh, and then um, are all into stable coins, which are just pegged to the dollar. Um, by the way, stable coins are not the only peg to the dollar. There are lots of dollarized economies. The Hong Kong dollar has been pegged to the US dollar uh, for many years. 7.8 Hong Kong dollars or so equals one US dollar. And incidentally, that has the effect of uh, exporting uh, monetary policy to Hong Kong, even though that's not the target of policymakers. There, there are a ton of dollar pegs out there, in addition to crypto, that I think lend credibility and faith in the system enduring, at least for the foreseeable future. The big question is, how do you define foreseeable? Yeah, 500 years ago, we definitely don't know. Next 20, I don't know either. I mean, like, I think Britain was sure it has an empire until well, 20 years later, there was none and pound was not the uh, reserve currency. Not that I want the dollar to stop being the reserve currency. I'm just saying, like, anything could really happen. I just, yeah. want, I just think what's fascinating is that crypto created the concept of a non-sovereign currency. And even though it's not a country, because people typically think that a, a country must be the dominant world power for its reserve currency to be used. But actually, I don't think the dollar, so I don't think Britain was actually the biggest country GDP-wise back when it was, um, 
when this currency was used actually was rather small compared to America. So I guess it's more about power. Definitely global. Big, it was a globalized country for quite a long time. Yeah, I think yeah. it was globalized. It was not the biggest, but it was globalized and had power. It had an ability to project power. Maybe that's why crypto can't happen because there's no Bitcoin army. Although there is one on Twitter, obviously. But <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I guess time will show. Yeah. So one of the primary tools of the Fed is quantitative easing and setting interest rates. Um, thing is, though, you have interest rates in DeFi. Euler, uh, are they compound? They show your variable interest rates on things like Ethereum, DAI, WBTC, etc. Uh, you can, in theory, use a fixed rate protocol like Pendle or Notional and fix those variable rates into a yield curve, essentially, like a one-week rate, a 12-month rate, a six-month rate, etc. As, let's say, the metaverse takes off and people start buying stuff like uh, digital real estate in the metaverse, uh, could they use like, let's say they used for a mortgage, the Ethereum-based kind of DeFi interest rate. Could you envision the world like that? Like how would the world look like where interest rates are actually set by DeFi, not by the Fed? Yeah, um, two parts to that answer. The, the Fed and other central banks aren't going to, to go away. And so long as sovereign currency is still legal, legal tender in um, a variety of countries, there's they're going to be there's going to be outsized influence in, in real currency rates, and I think that's that's something that it, we won't see go away anytime soon. Uh, you know, legal tender means you can pay your taxes and settle debts in that currency. So, for example, for Americans, the IRS requires you to pay in dollars; you cannot pay in crypto. That's that's very an important distinction. Uh, to your point about the yield curve in the DeFi space. Yeah, I think we're in the early days of that. And the term structure of interest rates, that interpolated yield curve is being sorted out right now. So there's a, there's a natural rate of interest uh, that is, that's observable that we are beginning to observe in, in the DeFi space that a lot of protocols will solve for. I think because crypto and digital asset markets are uh, a bit more amplified in, in both appreciation and depreciation than traditional markets, that's there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of volatility there that's still being worked out, but in theory, to your point, yeah, you could buy if you had if you were so inclined a digital castle up in the clouds as real estate, and uh, finance that through a digital mortgage, effectively having locked in a thirty year you know term at some prevailing interest rate that was the market rate, and then the person that holds that asset will receive that rate. And then that mortgage could, in theory, be traded uh, on the blockchain. In the real world, if you wanted to buy some real estate you know, in California or somewhere or anywhere, um, I think that you would. there would be implications for law and blockchain. So how the deed to the property is held uh, and if the legal interface, it, it works with you getting a digital mortgage for a real world asset. And I think that's probably a bigger opportunity because people still live and eat and breathe real world air. So, so, so that market is probably bigger in, in the long run than, um, than the digital world. Although I might eat my words on that. That's, that's something that's still yet to be determined, but there's a huge market opportunity there. The, the fixed, um, fixed yield, fixed term products are actually much, much bigger in, uh, in, traditional worlds than, than like overnight markets, for example. 
Yeah, actually, it would be quite exciting to see some jurisdiction. I, I think in Switzerland, there's a region where I think so where you can actually pay your taxes in crypto. So I, I might oh, be wrong. okay. I didn't yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. that's interesting. If we see like a country or like a little region trying to create uh, enforced prevalence, not enforced, but, you know, uh, kind of uh, cause prevalence of crypto being paid, you know, used for paying taxes and for transactions. It would be interesting to see how the policy making works around that, given that Fed, uh, the central bank of that country will not have so much control. Yeah. Do you happen to know if that, if that tax payment, if that's in a pegged cryptocurrency or is it in something that I could think be it was volatile? Bitcoin. In the- I think oh, wow. So the government undertakes significant FX risk in this case. <laughs> that could actually be a good deal for for those for those individuals paying. It, it's the, it's the Swiss national, it's the Swiss bank. They can do whatever they want. You know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. What do you think about those? So one of the interesting things that um, when the economists did their, their big spread down the rabbit hole that I mentioned earlier, they talked about sort of three ways that that um, fintech might evolve. So there's like platform finance, things like Venmo that are trying to solve payments faster and, and better. Um, there are things like DeFi, which, which actually the articles were focused on. And then there were CBDCs as an alternative. The thing about platform finance and CBDCs is they keep power somewhat concentrated. I can't speak for the Fed, of course, but but this has been under study for a long time. And um, you know, there's there's a, a lot written about CBDCs, some of the benefits and uh, disadvantages of them. From purely from the perspective of disintermediating finance, uh, you know, if, if you have um, people who who, have, who need money, and then you have people who have money, and you have like ten intermediaries between them, uh, all of whom take a, a cut, it might actually make sense to somewhat disintermediate finance if you could hold an account or have CBDCs directly as a consumer or as a citizen. There might be some benefit and utility for you to have that. Of course, there are also risks to that. And some of the risks that have been highlighted are things like privacy, um, control, you know, it, the concentration of power. So if, if you know, a bad actor took over a central bank or um, if an authoritarian regime issued CBDCs, would I really want to be a citizen of this country interacting purely in CBDCs when... Um, when any any action I take could be you know criticized, even something innocent could be misinterpreted as as not innocent, uh, and, and there are private there, there are a lot of risks there. Uh, but I do like the concept in the sense of disintermediation. I think that to tie a bow around this topic, that that it'll be interesting to see how CBDCs versus DeFi um, will do because platform finance I think is a nice bridge to to get us further along the utility curve of, of what finance and technology can do, but it's probably not the long-term solution. I think it's probably going to look something more like DeFi or, or CBDCs. The final benefit of CBDCs is that you can transmit monetary policy much more easily with CBDCs. Monetary policy transmission is something that, that um, Fed and, and other central bankers think about all the time. And there's a lot of mechanisms in place to make that transmission effective. Um, it's it's not quite a slam dunk with CBDCs, but it's it's a lot easier. And so, if you wanted to innovate as a as a Fed or a central banker, uh, CBDCs might be be a bridge to get there. I think that's where it gets, at least in my opinion, it starts to become concerning because it goes from monetary transmission, where we're using nudges like slightly negative interest rates, um, right? Transmission nudges 
to effectively some sort of an enforcement where there's no more nudges necessary. You can say, you did this, we will inflate your money away by 20%. You have, you have a score, a credit score, or a um, carbon score of sorts. If you do this or that, you will see some of that money kind of uh, inflates away directly without any kind of recourse. So I think, I think that question becomes how much do we want to be efficient versus kind of the tenets of, kind of democracy, I guess. I think, yeah, those risks you highlight are, they're, they're true in the legacy financial system also. I mean, hyperinflation has been a problem in some countries or to complete devaluation of a currency like we saw a few years back in, in India have been problems before. And so when you're looking at currencies or value exchange, um, it's really like an IOU, it's a claim on other people, um, you know, at at its core. And if that claim is suddenly worthless, then that centralized, powerful um, intermediary or authority, uh, the power power doesn't go away or or get amplified with CBDCs so much. Uh, just it just stays there, and I think that's the that's the risk. That's the that's the big question. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, as you said, if someone really nasty came over, they'd have all this data, all this transaction data, uh, and enforcement ability to enforce whatever they want to enforce. That's kind of a bit concerning. But I suppose policy wise, it could be a better solution. I think time will show. Um, yeah, time yeah. will show. I suppose. So, Brandon, in the final years at the Fed, you were more uh, involved with the fiscal policy rather than the monetary policy. Um, what do you think about the current fiscal situation in the in the G10 economies or America? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So we chatted mostly about monetary policy this whole time, um, and monetary policy is obviously extremely important. But so is fiscal policy. So just just to give a clear definition. Monetary policy are things like that the FOMC would decide uh, the interest rates, the quantitative easing factors. Fiscal policy is how much the government spends on a variety of priorities. So social programs, fighter jets, aid, everything like that, um, infrastructure. So my role most recently at the Fed was um, to manage the day-to-day operations in New York for the U.S. Treasury auction. <clears throat> the Treasury auction is the primary market for Treasury securities. It's a massive, massive operation. So at the, I think at the peak uh, about a year ago, post-pandemic, we were doing roughly $1.6 trillion a month in bills, notes, bonds, floaters like TIPS and FRNs. Um, that is a massive number. That's trillion with a T. Uh, that also refinanced maturing U.S. treasuries. So everything that was rolling off would get refinanced. And then all aggregate uh, additional spending had to be financed as well. Um, The the basic principle is that Congress decides uh, fiscal policy. So they decide both the revenues through taxation and Congress decides expenditures through spending bills and appropriations. Uh, The difference, which has been a negative amount, which has been a shortfall for the past number of years, I think since the year 2000 or so when the government ran surpluses, that those are financed by, by treasury securities. Uh, the sun never sets on treasuries. It's the biggest, deepest, most liquid market in the world. Um, and the, <clears throat> the importance of treasuries cannot be understated. It's effectively known as the risk-free rate and uh, the, the rate of interest. I will say that the increase in 
so, so standing back for a second, there's there's a lot of criticism that can the government afford to take on as much debt as it has? And I think a lot of people look at this sort of from their own individual budgeting perspective. Don't buy what you can't afford. And that's very sensible. Uh, governments actually can buy what they can't afford. Um, controlling a currency, and especially the world's reserve currency, is an exorbitant privilege, as it's known, that um, only governments and a handful of governments can do. Uh, if you're an industrialized, wealthy country that issues debt in your own currency, in theory, you could actually never default because you could always just, you know, the central bank could expand policy uh, such that you, the, the bank would buy all the debt outstanding. And, you know, that monetization of the debt is, is not permitted in most countries, but it's effectively, you know, the, 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 it's an open question whether the Bank of Japan, for example, or the Fed will ever be able to shrink its balance sheet back to, to some moderate level. Um, so is this good or bad? You would argue that during the great financial crisis, one would argue that during the great financial crisis and the onset of the pandemic, <clears throat> there was a huge, huge risk. Demand just simply dried up. And when private sector demand dries up, there's only one big player who can step in <clears throat> to get the economy going again, to keep people employed, to make sure that basic things are, are done, that basic goods and services are bought, and that's the government, the federal government. In the case of the U.S., those extremely large fiscal deficits that are additive to the fiscal debt, the government's debt, are um, massive seeming in the notional size, but they're actually not huge in terms of percentage for the size of the overall U.S. economy. Uh, and I'm talking in the sort of broad historical perspective. So the previous time that the national debt was so high was during World War II, arguably the biggest crisis of you know, the past century, and, um, and something that I don't think anyone argues retrospectively we should not have spent money on. Uh, and in fact, the, the spending got the U.S. Um, into like a prime economic position, and those debts were consolidated over the next few decades. Um, and at fairly, you know, aside from the, the bulk of the fairly decent levels of interest. Uh, right now, or, or at least for the past few years, and Post-Great Financial Crisis, the, the biggest problem was demand. And with interest rates, monetary policy also uh, help, helping to stimulate the economy, there was no better time, actually, to issue a ton of debt in order to finance real-world economic issues. Um, infrastructure, for example. I think infrastructure is a huge shortcoming in the U.S. I think that the U.S. in particular led infrastructure in that post-World War II era, but much of that infrastructure is, is aging, decrepit. Um, American airports, for example, are famously uh, bad compared with, with other uh, global or international airports. They didn't used to be, though. They used to be sort of gleaming gateways to the world. Um, those types of projects have long, long run returns. So, you know, if you think about a bridge, how long a bridge lasts, that lasts 100 years. You have to finance it at the very beginning. But you actually amortize that bridge in, in theory that the economic benefit of that bridge comes over a very, very long time. And that bridge create, created a link that helped two economies, you know, on each side of the river thrive by being one bigger economy. Um, I think these are the kinds of things that are um, smart infrastructure that, that you could argue are well worth any large industrialized country with okay or poor infrastructure to undertake. 
Now, to go back to Japan, because I think Japan is such an interesting case study in pretty much every regard. Japan had a lot of white elephant projects where they were funding, um, essentially stimulating a ton of demand through construction throughout the 90s and early 2000s. And the debt, the fiscal deficit of Japan has been mounting year after year after year after year. Has it mattered is the question. And you could argue, yeah, it, it can't exist into perpetuity, just like the US or any, any country can't issue debt into perpetuity on an increasing basis with, with no hope of, of repaying or at least servicing the debt, which I think is the most important aspect here. Um, however, in, in the Japan's case, they owe almost all the debt to themselves. So all the debt is held domestically. And that makes a huge difference. I think it's like something like 8%. I'm probably, my, my stats are outdated. 8% of JGBs are held by institutions outside of Japan. So if you owe all the debt to yourself, it's essentially just an accounting phenomenon. You have assets on one side and liabilities on the other at ultra low rates of interest. Um, and it's helped kept up Japanese demand and helped um, helped inf- help deflation or disinflation be a little bit less severe in Japan. And, that, and that's been helpful. So yes, the, the I've auctioned um, myself along with a team. There's, there's hundreds of, of people actually involved in the auction across the Fed, the Treasury, and and the 24 big primary dealers, um, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of debt. Um, but I think much of that has been to support programs and the federal government, the military, all the things that people know and love. Uh, and some things that people don't love, uh, it, it's helped support all of those things over, over the number of years that I've been there. Yeah, I suppose at the end of the day, what really matters is the productivity of the debt. Is it creating That's value right. down the line or is it just wasted money? So time will show if all this fiscal stimulus is that or the other. <laughs> and there are a lot of economic and political arguments around that. <clears throat> yeah. But I think um, the, the, the biggest headline factor to focus on is, is it manageable? Uh, because if the economy grows faster than the debt servicing cost, then you're fine. Actually, you're completely fine. And it was well worth doing. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right. Perfect. Brandon, thanks for coming on. Uh, it was yeah. a great chat. Uh, we, discussed from, yeah, we discussed from macro to to Euler, to DeFi, I think it was a pretty cool conversation. So hope to have you back on soon. Agreed. Likewise. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Brennan Neal, COO of Euler Finance, who used to work for 10 years at the New York Fed. Thank you.